This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 8th of May 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next 30 minutes, Simon Brook will be reviewing the newspapers. Then... With infection numbers now down, confidence up, the editorial team is fully back. And the hope is that this time we get to stay united. We'll hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Colin Grant of the Royal Literary Fund is here to tell us all about Writer's Mosaic. Also, what we learned this week. We learned that Trump had revived his stream of whatever you call it when consciousness doesn't seem like quite the right word at donaldjtrump.com forward slash desk. Plus... Henry Mance tells us how to love animals. All of that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. Do stay with us. First, here are the headlines. In Jerusalem, there were clashes at the Al-Aqsa Mosque last night. At least 163 Palestinians and six Israeli police officers were injured when police fired rubber bullets and stun grenades at Palestinians who threw stones and bottles. Tensions have been rising over the potential eviction of Palestinians from land claimed by Jewish settlers. The World Health Organization, the WHO, has validated the safety, efficacy and quality of the Sinopharm jab made by a Chinese state-owned company. The emergency approval was the first given to a vaccine developed by a non-Western country. India's southern state of Tamil Nadu announced a new lockdown measure today as officials reported a nationwide record number of single-day COVID-19 deaths as cases continue to surge. And in the Monocle Minute weekend edition email bulletin, we look at the return of the suitcase and head to a buoyant Helsinki as the spring coincides with easing restrictions and, in some cases, a bracing seawater swim. We'll also have CNN host and writer Fareed Zakaria on his globally comprehensive news diet, and we find out how you can get your hands on a Martian meteorite. Sign up for your own copy direct to your email inbox at monocle.com forward slash minute. Well, it's time now to have a browse through this morning's newspapers, and I'm joined today by Simon Brook, journalist and communications consultant. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning. It's a bit of a rainy, horrible day here in London, isn't it? Are the papers do the papers have anything to cheer us? Well, if you're a conservative, they certainly have a lot to cheer you. Um, yes, the UK papers wall to wall coverage um, of the Conservatives' amazing election victory over the last few days, and uh, particularly in Hartlepool, this seat in the northeast of England, which nobody expected them to win. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The, the Times is quoting uh, a comment that uh, is widely reported elsewhere as well, that the prime minister is planning to uh, uh, to is planning a, a decade in power, if you like, that he's uh, hoping to over to take overtake Margaret Thatcher, um, the great uh, Tory Prime Minister um, in his uh, his tenure in Downing Street. But it's interesting that the piece in The Times also, um, as well as that sort of political hubris, if you like, there's also, I think, an acknowledgement that these votes that people in these former Labour seats have given the Tories, well, they haven't given them, they've only lent them. 
And so there's a lot of coverage of the Tory levelling up agenda. And certainly the Times emphasises the fact that uh, the Tories are going to be talking very much about this, this levelling up, this infrastructure investment, uh, pouring money into the seats and to make sure that... Uh, that they don't disappoint the people who amazingly uh, against all the against all the odds against all politi- political conventional wisdom have given them or as i say probably lent them their votes which is quite extraordinary actually isn't it i mean i'm sure there'll be a ton of analysis on this but but it but it does seem yeah extraordinary it is um, extraordinary yeah uh, i also wonder given how gaff prone the prime minister is and all these allegations of sleaze and so on uh, if he may not be undone overnight at any time really well, it's interesting, isn't it? In a way, the sort of the gaff, the, the the Boris gaff thing is sort of priced in. I think I would say, talking to his supporters and talking to people who have who were on the ground with him, not just in general elections, but also in the the Brexit vote. I mean, people love him, and one of the reasons they like him is because he seems dishevelled. He's slightly all over the place. He makes these gaffes or whatever. They seem to sort of accept that this is Boris, that this is what he does. Um, I think obviously the real question is. And certainly you mentioned the sleaze there. I mean, that I think that just hasn't really affected ordinary people because it doesn't affect their pockets sort of thing. I mean, yes, it, it you know, it is if the allegations are true and it certainly is very murky, that is quite shocking. But when it comes to that sort of, you know, the, the, the policies, the, the impression on the ground uh, that it doesn't really have that impact. I suppose the only question will be if the um, Electoral Commission really does find that there's been some. Uh, criminal uh, misdemeanor, in which case, you know, it will be much more serious for mm. him. But I mean, one thing that can't be disputed is that the Prime Minister lies. And we've seen so many concrete examples of this. There have been Peter Oborn's excellent book on on, on his lies, various uh, works in, in the, the Sunday Times did a, a fantastic piece on this too. Uh, why don't people care? I don't know. Is it is it a, a post-truth society? Are people more cynical about the morality of politicians than they ever have been? Are are they just really, as I say, more concerned than ever about those sort of pocketbook issues? You know, will I have a job? Will I be able to um, use the health service if I need it? Are my kids going to get the education they want? I mean, I think it really is. It's worrying and <clears throat> disturbing that uh, political lying, which I mean, you're absolutely right. Peter Oborn is excellent on that. It's worrying, disturbing that that is widely accepted. But, uh, you know, we saw it had no effect on Donald Trump's electoral success at all, did it? Mm. And it doesn't seem to be doing Boris Johnson much harm either. But I suppose the question is, will one of those lies be so serious and have such an impact on ordinary people that, as you say, uh, people run out of, of patience with them and think, no, that that's a lie too far. No, we're withdrawing support from mm. you. Just before we leave this subject, I'm sure you're far too highbrow to have seen this, but The Sun has a video <laughs> of uh, Boris Johnson and his fiancée, Carrie Simons, going to vote. Uh, and it's the most extraordinary body language. He's sort of almost frog marching her into the <laughs> polling station. I would urge our listeners to have a look at that video. It's I will indeed. Very, yeah. very hot. Yeah. <laughs> right, let's move on. Uh, the New York Times, uh, belonging is stronger than facts. What's this? It's about the age of uh, misinformation. Well, yeah, absolutely. Just segueing in from what we've just been talking about with <laughs> Boris Johnson. Yes, absolutely. So the interpreter column um, in the New York Times reports on new research, which explains really why rumours or, you know, is it fake news, fake news uh, such as uh, President Biden planning to force Americans to eat less meat or the state of Virginia 
it's reported uh, eliminating advanced maths in schools to advance racial equality. Uh, why do these sort of rumours take hold? And um, according to new research uh, from Dartmouth College, a political scientist there called Brendan Nyhan, I mean, very briefly, first is that uh, uh, what, what he describes as in-grouping, basically a, gr- a belief that people's social identity is a source of strength and superiority and that other groups can be blamed for their problems. So um, people are quite happy to to circulate any story which emphasises their their own group superiority. Second, the the, the researcher um, points out that there's a that we've got this group of politicians, as we were just saying, who actually sort of are quite relaxed with uh, their um, uh, followers indulging in their desire for identity affirming misinformation. Um, and the third, inevitably, is the shift to social media. So that's why this sort of fake news, this lying, I suppose, as we were saying is widely accepted. Um, I was hoping there might be some solution in this piece that this is what we need to do about it, but uh, unfortunately there isn't. Um, and it, it just research, it quotes another researcher who makes, I think, a very telling point that belonging is stronger than facts. So if a, if a, if a fact, as we see it, uh, emphasises the, uh, the righteousness of our own group, if you like, then we're willing to not just believe it, but share it widely on social media. Mm. And perhaps one way to conquer it, though, might be just to cut oneself off from the internet and go and live somewhere extremely rural, or at least spend time in the garden, which is what The Guardian's talking about. What a lovely idea. Yeah, absolutely interesting piece here in The Guardian. Uh, apparently, more people are seeking their own outside space to experience nature and spend time with their family. And it quotes... Uh, uh, John, uh, Joe Fielding, who's the managing director of a broker firm called Woods for Sale, which sells woods, obviously, in forests and things. And he says that sales have doubled over the last 12 months. And there's a lovely case study here of Owen Gardner and his wife, Anya, uh, who live in Farnborough in Hampshire in the south of uh, England. And they've bought 2.2 hectares of woodland in Surrey. Uh, and they did that last summer. And there's a lovely picture of them in there, surrounded by mature trees and uh, and beautiful nature. And uh, it's such a lovely idea. And I think the wonderful thing is that here is a plot of land, which presumably Mr. and Mrs. Gardner will be rear- what a what an appropriate name, uh, nominative <laughs> determinism there. Uh, presumably they will love and cherish and, uh, and you know, Im- improve the sort of the natural world as a result. Yeah. Uh, and finally, Simon, uh, music and how it affects what you eat. This is interesting. Yes. Uh, new, more psychological research, this uh, this time from the uh, university, uh, Aarhus University in Denmark. Um, apparently gentle melodic jazz in the style of Dave Brubeck or Miles Davis uh, was associated in surveys and research with people who heard it uh, choosing fresh fruit over donuts and, uh, and leafy greens over pizza, apparently. On the other hand, if you go for heavy rock in, uh, in one experiment, uh, there was a 40% increase in uh, people choosing fattier, saltier and more sugary options. So I think we know what we should be uh, listening to when we eat, shouldn't we? Absolutely. Simon, thank you very much for joining thank us you. here. Uh, that was Simon Brook and this is Monocle on Saturday. Now then, let's turn to Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. We learned this week that at least one major public arena will continue to be deprived of such vital contributions to the discourse as this. 
Facebook, having succeeded in ejecting one family's embarrassing conspiracy adult elderly relative from its platform, decided that former US President Benito Cartman's time in the wilderness had some while still to run. The ban he incurred after his attempted putsch in January will endure. Would a door slamming sound effect make sense here? It'd emphasise the whole shut out thing, but do you slam a door on someone if you've shut them out already? Do audio illustrations need to be as structurally coherent as a written metaphor? Why am I recording the notes to the producer into the monologue? Come on. <laughs> Just get on with it. What about hopeful knocking, door opening cautiously, door slamming? well worth the wait. But we learned that it takes more than this to daunt Donald Trump, who defiantly and boldly and sanely launched his own thing. We learned that Trump had revived his stream of whatever you call it when consciousness doesn't seem like quite the right word at donaldjtrump.com forward slash desk. We learned that retirement has in no respect diminished Trump's acuity, as demonstrated by the following extremely sensible and not even slightly deranged analysis posted on donaldjtrump.com forward slash desk on Wednesday and read with all the solemnity it merits by Monocle24's desk, desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Had Mike Pence referred the information on six states, only in issue, back to state legislatures, and had gutless and clueless minority leader Mitch McConnell, he blew two seats in Georgia that should have never been lost, if they fought to expose all of the corruption that was presented at the time with more found sins, we would have had a far different presidential result, and our country would not be turning into a socialist nightmare. Never give up. Still... Leaping elegantly from the struggles of one absurdly overpromoted entertainer with silly hair to another, Donald Trump can at least claim to have completed his term without restarting the Hundred Days War of 1815. And we learned that whatever ambitions UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson had of matching this feat appear in some jeopardy. For we learned that Royal Navy gunboats were to be dispatched to Jersey to ward off French trawler folk threatening to blockade the port of St. Helier over something to do with fish. And if you thought we were going to get through this without doing a cry cod for Harry, England and St. George thing, you must be new here. Shouldn't you all be queuing outside a recruiter's office or at least smashing up a patisserie in a seizure of patriotic rage? We also learned that France's perfidious treachery, we're getting quite into this, did not cease there. That damnable nation of hoop-shirted, beret-wearing, bicycle-riding, onion-retailing scoundrels, this is fun, also threatened to cut off Jersey's electricity. So we learned that Jersey has electricity. We now wearily anticipate learning that Jersey very much has email. (laughs) 
We have not yet learned, but fervently hope to, that Britain is already summoning its allies from the last Anglo-French dust-up, and that the cavalries of Saxony, Württemberg, Prussia, Hanover, Brunswick, Baden, and Bavaria are already polishing their lances. I'll grow up. But we did learn that France may find itself fighting on two fronts. For we learned that France had been invaded by Belgium. Maestro, the Belgian national anthem. We learned that a Belgian farmer, vexed by a stone border marker interrupting the progress of his tractor, moved the thing out of the way, in so doing abrogating the 1820 Treaty of Courtrai and annexing 2.29 metres of French territory. A crucial early triumph for the Anglo-Belgian alliance and a crushing blow to French morale. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. And we learned that half a morning spent failing to nail a seamless link between the imminent cross-channel hostilities over fish and a bit about a Japanese squid eventually feels like a somewhat profligate expenditure of one's time. And so, we just plain learned that the Japanese seaside town of Noto in Ishikawa Prefecture had spaffed 25 million yen of its allocation of government COVID-19 relief funds on a 13 metre long statue of a Japanese flying squid. And why not? We have not learned, however, whether the deeply weird pink monument was commissioned as a favour to some underemployed sculptor relative of the mayor or anything, so we are uncertain as of this broadcast whether it is, in fact, a squid pro quo. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. I'd like to be under the sea In an octopus's garden in the shade Now, the Royal Literary Fund has launched a new platform and podcast. It's called Writer's Mosaic, and it's dedicated to commissioning and showcasing original writing from literary voices and cultures underrepresented and marginalised in the UK mainstream. The director, Colin Grant, is here to tell us more. Good morning to you, Colin. Hello there. Uh, could you start by telling us about the Royal Literary Fund? What is it? Well, it's uh, an organization that has been around for several hundred years now, which started off to help writers who were impoverished, but also in debtors' jail. It was there to get them out of jail to pay their debts. And it's been going on for quite some years now. And in its recent iteration, it's really a platform to help writers find work and to pay them for work. And uh, in its latest iteration, it has a mission to educate the public taste in literature. So it's been around for quite some time and now it's spreading its wings to include more people like me. So tell us about this new initiative. Yes, well, it's called Writer Mosaic. It's um, a, I think, exciting development which has come out uh, over the last few years. This has been in planning for about three or four years. And essentially we're providing a platform for writers 
who already have been published, but maybe don't have a bigger platform and maybe aren't very well known. But there are a range of people who, some of whom you all know. Um, we have people like um, Roger Robinson, who won the T.S. Eliot Prize. And he'll be uh, on in a few weeks um, reciting his poem, Grace. Uh, we have Paul Mendes, who is a, a new novelist who, who wrote a novel called Rainbow Milk. And uh, that's a novel which kind of explains his, all, his own trajectory from being someone who's disfellowshipped from the Jehovah Witness to become a sex worker, to becoming a, a respected novelist. So we have a range of voices. Um, and I suppose what we're hoping to do is to um, encourage people to think that there's not just one type of writing that people of colour do. I think there's a temptation to always default to this notion that black people or people of colour will just write about race and identity. So we're hoping to we're hoping to complicate that notion and, and show that there are myriad voices out there and unexpected voices. Mm. I mean, so, so for instance, we have a, um, a very fine writer called Jeffrey Buichi, who's a very witty writer, and uh, he's done a, a kind of desert island discs of grime. So if any of your listeners wants to have a a start in where to begin to listen to grime, they might want to tune into Jeffrey. Mm. So uh, I'm interested in the way this works. What it, so that there are author talks, there creative exchanges, there interviews. What are the sort of different components that make up Writers Mosaic? Yes. So essentially, we commission uh, authors to write three things: uh, two short pieces, which can be of any kind of writing that. Um, showcases what they do, their individuality and their unique writer's voice, and the longer piece of up to about 10 minutes that gives them a chance to dive more deeply. But I think what we're trying to do really is to give people who may not know, give readers who may not know these writers a sense of what they are like. So you might get a book through your door and not really want to open it because you don't know anything about the writer. But if you get a chance to get a snippet of what kind of writer he or she or they are, then you might be encouraged to then open the book. Um, but then we're having these sort of what we call peer-to-peer -peer interviews where writers are interviewing other writers about their writing practice. And again, it, I think it's a way that you can see that people can be respected for what they do and not boxed into what they're expected to do. So there are very few discussions really about race and identity. They're more discussions about what it is that uh, makes them unique. Mm. So... I mean, there's a very fine writer called Shamshad Khan, who, uh, when she was asked about uh, her best approach to writing, she said, well, stillness is the best approach to writing. And the best thing that she's done in, in recent years is not write and, and to allow herself to recharge your batteries and to, um, to begin again. Mm. How did you decide who was going to be included? It was a sort of uh, a, a group of fellows of, of the RLF. That's right, yeah. Well, it's uh, going to be an ongoing project. We've just launched. Uh, I've been given a three-year contract, and we are going to be renewing our sites every week with new writers and new content. And the RLF fellows who are part of the board, uh, they come from a, across the landscape of writing. So the board is made up of about eight writers, but there'll be children's writers, there'll be screenwriters, playwrights, poets, non-fiction writers, novelists. And I think what we're aiming to do is, through our own particular disciplines, to sort of fan out and find people who we think are worthy of being included. And it, it will begin to grow by word of mouth. So every time we profile a writer, they might want to recommend somebody else. 
And so there'll be this knock-on domino effect. Uh, at the moment, we've, we've interviewed about and profiled about 30 writers. We have them in our pipeline. We're only producing two or three writers per, per week. But we will be unfolding these writers over the course of the year. And, and by three years, we'll have, I don't know, several hundred writers on our books. And I think we'll become, in the words of our uh, founding editor, Gabriel Badimosi, will become the kind of industry standard. If you want to really get a sense of the polarity of voices of colour out there, then this will be the first place that you'll come to. And how can we access it? Yes, very simply, go to writersmosaic.org.uk. That's all one word, writersmosaic.org.uk, or Google me, Colin Grant, and... um, you'll be led to the site. Fantastic. Colin Grant from uh, the Royal uh, Literary Fund, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, Writer's Mosaic, absolutely uh, on, on, my, uh, on my agenda. Thank you so much to you, Colin. Thank you. Now let's hear from our Editor-in-Chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekend column. Back in January, when the second lockdown hit, our offices went quiet, although not silent. When you have a radio station, live news shows and a magazine to dispatch to the printers, you have to keep a core group together. And with infection numbers now down, confidence up, the editorial team is fully back. And the hope is that this time we get to stay united. Why does it matter? It's more creative. It's easier to finesse projects in real time that are moving at pace. It's simpler to spot when somebody needs some help. It's also more likely that you will avoid errors creeping into the process. And then there's the selfish bit. I like seeing these people. While we may not have a water cooler, we do have water cooler moments when films are recommended, stories unpacked, funny moments relived, ideas shared. That's not to say that our teams in distant offices should be out of the loop. We make sure that there's a weekly Asia bureau call with Fiona and Jun in our Tokyo office and Nina and James in Hong Kong. The highlight this week was Fiona explaining why a new cologne is based on the smell of sumo wrestlers. But as too many reports continue to appear declaring that office life is doomed, here are just three moments and a few perhaps unsung stars that made Midori House the place we all wanted to be this week. On Wednesday, the first copy of the Monocle Book of Homes came into the office. It's exciting when a new book arrives, and it's stunning. It was designed by our art director, Sam Brogan, and he's done an amazing job. I've seen the focus and the late nights that he has poured into every page and every decision. Sam brought the book over to show me the second that it landed, and he was beaming. How great, I thought, to have such pride in the things you make. Really, you had to be there. On Tuesday, we recorded the 500th episode of The Urbanist, which will air this coming Thursday. It's a show that I get to host, but booking the guests, honing the debates, stitching together my fumbled audio is down to two people on Monocle 24, producer Carlotta Rabello and the senior studio manager David Stevens. For this landmark show, the tables were turned, and I was the guest. The result is both a celebration of almost 10 years of the podcast and a gentle roasting of yours truly. As the recording ended, David came in and opened a bottle of champagne. Just two of the people who have helped keep the radio live and essential over the past 18 months, even when their families are far off, in this case in Portugal and New Zealand. Yesterday, 
we just about sent the June issue to print. We have a tight squad of sub-editors who have to proof and improve every story, make sure that the credits are in order, take in rounds of corrections from editors and late-filing writers, oh, and so much more. They have, perhaps, the most stressful of roles to play. Running all is chief sub-editor Lewis Huxley, whose calmness, precision and focus are unbelievable. And he's dapper too. There was a moment this week when I just thought, how does he do all of this? There were people hovering around him, printouts being dropped on his desk, and then I arrived, well, with even more changes. But there's something in this intensity, in this ability to make to-the-second decisions on press day, that just works when we're all present. I should also mention Nick and Louis, two young writers who are now also flourishing as editors. They pull together the Saturday Monocle Weekend Edition, for starters, and who you see making the most of every project, every interaction that they have with the world of journalism. That's hard to replicate on Zoom. Or what about Joe and Hester and Molly on the books team, who this week were already deep into planning a new title for anyone who wants to start or grow a business, and who were able to nicely corner me when they needed feedback without sending an entreating email. This has also been a week of interviewing face-to-face people for the new internship programme, planning for the launch events at Midori House for the new Holmes book with Hannah, and just as importantly, being surrounded by clever conversation, people passionate about making magazines and radio, and a feeling of nourishing camaraderie. And that's why for me, and many more people, the future is not being sat in the spare bedroom all day, but in the office reborn. And that was Andrew Tuck with his weekend column. And of course, you can always read that in our Monocle Minute Weekend edition. Now, Henry Mance joins us to talk about his book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. Henry, welcome to Monocle 24. Uh, This is not a book about what animals can do for us, but what we can do for animals, it says on the book. This was a personal quest for you. Tell us how it began. That's right. Um, and thanks for, for having me on. I became vegetarian a few years ago, actually, really, after reading Sapiens by uh, Yuval Harari. Um, but I didn't really put, put much thinking into to what, what this meant or why I was doing it, really. And I suppose I was one of those people who've always loved looking at animals, going on safaris, going on wildlife uh, trips, watching David Attenborough documentaries. But then I turned it round and thought, well, actually, has all this appreciation that I've given to animals, has that led them to better lives? Has that given them more space? Has that given them freedom from cruelty um, or whatever else? And I started thinking about what I was eating and also what what kind of world I wanted my kids to grow up in, in terms of the wild animals that might be available for them to see. Mm. And I mean, you then got hugely involved. I mean, your research process, for instance, took you uh, to work in an abattoir. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. Or, but uh, if um, if anyone listening is interested, it is very easy to get a job in one, I can say. Um, and I mean, what I was trying to do there really is to go right to the to the the darkest part really of our relationship with animals, which is just the sheer number of them that we we kill for food. I mean, in the UK, for example, you're talking about 11 million pigs a year slaughtered, um, and a lot of people say, well, look, if you ever saw this process, you would turn vegetarian. And yeah, I think it does change your perspective. And you see this system we've created, which takes up a huge um, portion of the world's 
uh, land as much as anything of, of livestock farming and then also leads to, to abattoirs and, and, and other parts of the process. But you start questioning whether this is really reflective of the love we have. Many people are absolutely adore their, their pet dogs, cats, um, and many of the farm animals we keep have similar social needs, similar intelligence. So why do we treat them so differently? And that was the question I was trying to get at. Mm. And, and, and you say, I mean, you say meat eating is shaped by culture as children start eating it before they're old enough to question the practice. And that's so true, isn't it? If we brought our kids up differently in a generation, we'd look back and go, how did we ever, ever eat animals? I, I, my, I think you're right. I think, um, my, I mean, my daughters, who are both quite young, um, have not eaten meat. And I don't think they're aware of any absence. And I think we sometimes forget that that taste is something you learn. Um, and we're presented with with taste very young. And we, we, we start to to gather those in as normal. But but there's no um, there's no reason why a well-planned vegan or vegetarian diet can't be just as nutritious. And you see actually now, I mean, the big holdback has been taste. But I was delighted to see this this week, a New York restaurant, Michelin starred, 11 Madison Park, decide to go um, fully vegan in its food menu. And what they're effectively saying there is you can make just as good tastes with sustainable food. And mm. I think that we haven't seen the, the effort and the thinking and the creativity go into that, but we are now. Yeah. Let's talk about zoos, because you went to have a chat with uh, Damien Aspinall, who, who owns two safari parks. Uh, is it OK to visit zoos? Is it OK to keep animals in zoos? I mean, I grew up going to zoos and um, and so I was I was a bit reluctant or hesitant to ask the question. I think many of us assume that there is a kind of Noah's Ark uh, purpose that they serve. And yet talking to Damien Aspinall, who who I have to say is, is probably the the loudest and most consistent um, opponent of zoos, even though he, he inherited two safari parks in Kent. Um, I, I think talking to him and looking at the science, it's clear that actually zoos don't really live up to the promise of saving animals. And they, they certainly struggle to give good lives to some of the most iconic animals like elephants, for example, which wants to live in herds, which want lots of space, which don't want concrete floors. For them, zoos are very difficult. And I think if we want to save wild animals, the thing we really have to do is to stop the encroachment of agriculture and livestock farming around the world, um, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, if you're talking about lions and, and elephants, but obviously in the Amazon and elsewhere. And so it's not really about creating these fortresses in the middle of our cities, which were set up for very different reasons in the 19th century. So uh, I'm very interested in this point about um, Southern Africa. I'm, I'm Zimbabwean and have been on, had a lot of time in the bush and, and a lot of time on safari and a lot of time around wild animals. And one of the arguments that, that is put forward there is that sustainable hunting is a good thing. Uh, and that if you can identify just a couple of animals and restrict it to those animals with the training trophy fee going directly back into the community uh, and the, the animal you would target normally would be one that is perhaps uh, encroaching on farmland is destroying people's crops. People think that's a good idea. Now, obviously, in practice, because there's such massive corruption, <laughs> particularly in Zimbabwe, that doesn't always work. But do you think that there then can be a valid argument for, for hunting? I, in the book, I say yes, actually. And um, that surprised me. And I think it, it's a departure from many. I mean, I'm vegan now. And so I don't believe in, in livestock farming. I don't think it's right to keep dairy, uh, dairy cows and, and pigs in, in very cramped conditions. Um, but when I look at hunting, these are animals who, who live wild. And if the hunting can pay for their preservation then that is a much better situation. And um, I think in, in parts of Africa where it's a banned hunting, 
um, you've actually seen wildlife numbers drop. Whereas mm. in places like Namibia, which is, uh, allows hunting in and, and also p- makes sure the money goes back into communities, you've seen actually quite healthy numbers, uh, for example, of, uh, of rhino. Yeah, absolutely. No, that that's definitely the case, I believe. Um, just to, to animals that we're all much more familiar with, that's our own pets, cats and dogs and so on. Um, you have a kind of hilarious thing where you, where you go to CorgiCon. <laughs> yeah, an event I never knew existed, but I'm very glad I went. This was in um, San Francisco a couple of... Uh, of year, uh, years ago, but um, and on the beach overlooking the Pacific Ocean, a thousand corgis in the sand. Now, corgis are not <laughs> meant for sand, so you know. They, I mean, they look happy enough, but really, it's about the owners, and it's about the owners identifying with their dogs so much that they want to to come together with owners of other corgis. They want to buy merchandise. They want to, uh, you know, buy dog sunglasses, dog socks, um, dog cushions. And I sort of t- tried to ask, well, what does this all this mean? And and I think. There is something about, about our love for pets is extraordinary and is really praiseworthy that we managed to be able to jump over this barrier between species. And on the other hand, it's a slight missed opportunity. I mean, if we love these animals so much, then why, for example, do we breed them in very unhealthy shapes? And French bulldogs have been hugely popular on both sides of the Atlantic. And they're simply not healthy dogs. No. And um, I mean, equally, if we appreciate dogs, if we appreciate cats, then surely we can appreciate their wild cousins and and also make sacrifices. Americans spend, or, or last year spent for the first time, $100 billion on their pets. Now, a, a fraction of that is spent on wildlife conservation. Yeah. And you end the book with a, a sort of checklist of, of how to love animals, what you can do. Stop eating meat, of course, is, is the, the top one up there. Um, and then you have a whole whole list of give up dairy, eat less fish. Uh, and then talk about you talk about experiencing the wild and you're really encouraging people to get out there. Yes. And I think, I mean, just going back to zoos, people think that's the way to see animals. And actually, I find that not going to a zoo, you can still find animals really wherever you are. I live in London. Um, There are frogs, there are birds, there are foxes. There are really wonderful creatures. And what the way to experience the world is not to see the most extraordinary or the biggest creature. It's to see uh, an animal using their intelligence using their their decision-making powers to, to take some food or to, to call out or, or whatever it might be. And you appreciate that there are other beings on this planet and that we are very lucky to share it um, with them and that they enrich our lives. I mean, nothing, nothing does more for your mental health, I think, than going for a walk around the lake and watching the ducks. Absolutely. Henry, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, this book, as I say, has a very, very helpful checklist, what you can do, what we can all do together, uh, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World by Henry Mance. It's published by Vintage. Thanks so much. And that's all we have time for on today's programme. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.